You are listening to the District Church Podcast. To learn more about us, find us online at districtchurch.org. Great. Good morning. Glad to have you here this uh, morning. If we haven't met, my name is uh, Kevin, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And it's always a joy for us as pastors to uh, be part of the faith journey that you are walking uh, through and, and what God is just taking you through. Let me just say, it's been wonderful for us just to worship here together. Uh, but I want to also just say that uh, next Friday, next Friday uh, from 6.30, right? 6, this, this coming Friday. Okay, English is hard, guys. <laughs> this coming Friday, uh, uh, this coming Friday, all right? What date? Let's use date. Um, that's safer, all right? Uh, uh, so, so the 28th, we're going to be gathering here. Uh, oh my! Okay, guys, let, let me take that back again, all right? On the 26th, that is this Friday. This Friday. Are we together? This Friday, we'll gather here at what time? 6.30. At least let me not blow up the time again, you know. So we'll gather, we'll gather here at 6.30, uh, and it's going to be a time of worship. Uh, and just praising the Lord together. We'll spend uh, at least uh, two hours just spending time in worship and prayer. So please gather here. It's going to be a culmination for us. That's not the last day of our prayer and fasting, uh, but it's a great opportunity for us to finish well. Uh, so I would love to see as many of you as possible gathered here as we worship uh, together. But then most importantly, that tomorrow from 6.45, we'll continue with our time of prayer and fasting. Now, this is the last mile. All right? So I want us to push through uh, all to the very end. We've had a fantastic time. We've had people gathered uh, from across this nation, people traveling and still, uh, you know, locked in. They're still uh, logging in for us to be able to pray together. It's been so awesome for us to pray. If you haven't been a part of this, we would love for you to join us uh, beginning tomorrow from 6.45 till 7 as we continue in this last week of prayer and uh, fasting. And then on Friday, we meet here at Columbia Heights, and then, of course, Sunday, uh, where we're going to be sharing communion as we break the fast uh, together. We continue with the book of Ephesians, and Pastor Aaron has been leading us through the book of Ephesians, and we are in Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we are camping out, and today we are from verse, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verse 17 all the way to verse 28. Back in the day, I used to love watching the extreme makeover home edition. Any lovers of, any fans of Extreme Makeover Home Edition? All right, all right, we have some fans here. Now, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, this was a TV show where a team of builders and designers will sort of come together to transform the homes of deserving families that are facing different challenges. And the show focuses on uh, families that are dealing with significant hardships in their lives or living just in inadequate conditions. Uh, and what they will do is that the team will tirelessly work towards renovating and rebuilding a new space for this family, personalized uh, space for the family. And my favorite part of the show was when the host will tell, will reveal uh, this new house to, their, uh, to, the, to the family. And he will tell the bus driver. All right. 
So we have, we have fans, we have fans in the house. If anyone knows where I can watch reruns of the Extreme Makeover, please let me know, uh, because I would love to watch them, you know, and, and, and you can just see the excitement of these families as they now see their new house. It just doesn't look nice. Their way of life has been transformed. Now, you might be wondering, what does that have to do with Ephesians chapter 4? I want you to hold on to that question because I'm going to come back to it because I suggest to us, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a form of extreme makeover life edition. This is not the home edition, but it's a life edition. Now, to back up a little bit, we are coming uh, from uh, uh, just uh, Paul, you know, writing to the Ephesians, and, and he's urging them to live in a way that matches the identity of believers in Christ and working hard to maintain the unity that has been given by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, last week we learned that how do we begin to use the gifts that God has given us. And when we do that, here's what begins to happen. We, start, we continue growing, you know, uh, we become healthy, we are growing, we are growing in our knowledge of, of Christ, and we are becoming more and more like Him. We are increasing in that knowledge. And then Paul now begins to address some specific things about the new standard of living that the followers of Jesus should have. And he double-clicks on what should be their character and their conduct as people. And knowing Paul, Paul doesn't mince his words. In fact, uh, uh, he's so bold in writing these letters, I am always convinced. In fact, every time I read the, the, the letters of Paul, I am become more, more and more convinced that if Paul were alive today, you better know that the American church is getting a letter. <laughs> and not just one. We're probably going to get like seven because he'll, he'll spend the first three letters or four letters addressing the issues that we have as an American church. You know the way we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? We might have like 1st American, 2nd American, 3rd American, 4th American, to the 7th American. Because you know we got issues in this country, right? And knowing Paul, he doesn't mince his words. In fact, what I love about him is that there's a boldness in him that you see and I admire because he knows that the Lord is with him as he continues with the work that God has called him to. And you see this, look at how he begins this part. And we need to pay attention because there's some practical things that he talks about here that will guarantee us transformation when we begin to apply them. In verse 17, this is what he says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. I, 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 he's so bold in what he's saying. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, in using the term Gentiles here, he's referring to the, those who are unbelievers, those who have chosen not to follow God. Uh, the Gentiles in Ephesus were deeply entrenched in sin. They were steeped in wickedness, you know, where people had elevated their wrongdoing to the next level. You see, if Ephesus stood out as a prominent uh, uh, you know, uh, commercial and cultural hub in the vast Roman Empire. And the city's reputation was not just solely built on the architectural marvel. One of the things that you'll notice is that Ephesus was actually, one, one of the uh, uh, wonders of the world was in Ephesus. And it's, Ephesus also held a prominent position when it came to the realms of debauchery and sexual immorality. Now, before we sit there and think, and I know we can judge and think, what an evil city that was. I want to remind us that that world is not any different from our world right now. Probably our world is even worse than it was back then. Because the wickedness that we see, we are not just living in the uh, capital of the nation. This is also a global capital because we get to influence the world from right here in D.C., 
But, but we see that in our city, there's a lot of wickedness. We have so many similarities, you know, the sexual immorality that we see, pagan religions, you know, depravity, uh, uh, corruption, wickedness colors the societal backdrop of our, of, of our cities. And, and this grim societal backdrop created a challenging environment for the growing church in the city back in Ephesus. And it's the same even with us. When you see the challenges we're experiencing, that, that is the kind of culture that many who had now, uh, uh, you know, uh, conf- become believers were battling with. They, they, they were in this environment where they were confronting the temptations and the pressures that were coming from what was known as popular culture back then. The, the pervasive moral climate sought to compromise their newfound faith as believers. This is the kind of culture that they were coming from. And that is what makes this passage so relevant to us because Paul here is urging the believers that is not the way they're supposed to live anymore, to reject this kind of living. Because he recognizes that they have accepted to follow Christ. Remember the audience that Paul is addressing here are the believers, the followers of Jesus. And so he looks at their lives and and what he's saying is that they should not live as the unbelievers do. Because how do the unbelievers live? This is how they live. Verse 17 continues, futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. It continues. Next verse. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. And what Paul is doing here is that he is revealing the illusion, hiding the harsh truth of a life that is lived without God. Sin has a seductive allure that tricks us into craving a life that falsely promises fulfillment. In our human nature, we often lean towards following popular culture. And and Paul is painting a bleak picture of lives that are influenced by sin, lives that are lacking dignity, they are lacking purpose, they are trapped in the clutches of perversion, they are driven by this unquenchable desire for more, and this is genuinely a sad life. When you take time to think about the life that Paul is addressing here, and he's quoting right here in verse 17, 18, and I think 19, it's a sad life. When, when, when something is considered as futile, it is often seen as a wasted or fruitless effort. And, and they, unbelievers, probably thought that all they were doing was right and good as, because, as long as aligned with their desires. And I suggest to us that this is the narrative that is being propagated to date by the secular world. That as long as it aligns with your desires, then go ahead and do what you want. You do you. Do what you feel. Do what you want. As long as it makes you happy, you can go ahead and just. And futility refers to the actions that do not lead to a meaningful outcome or or even achieve the intended purpose. Futility has the end result. It's, It's not useful. And, and Paul is like, that is not how you are supposed to live. That way of life as believers is not for you. 
Do not live like those unbelievers. And that's why he continues even in verse 20. This is what he says. And reading even from verse 21, he says, When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught in regard to your former way of life to do what? Put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. When you read this passage, you begin to understand that when you look at those things, this is not the very first time that these guys were hearing about this subject. They were taught before they had learned about this thing. What Paul here is saying is that the Christ that you have heard about, the Christ that you have been taught about, who is also the teaching, he's not just the subject, he's also the object of the teaching, is calling you to a new standard of living that is different from your former way of life. That is what Jesus is calling us to. Because Paul, spending time with the Ephesians, he must have observed the way they were living and he discovered that it was inconsistent with how they were taught as they followed Christ. And here is something that I want to tell us today. Your behaviors must align your belief in Jesus. If you have decided to follow Jesus, there, there must be a moment in your life where you look at your past and speak to yourself and say, Kevin, no more. There, there has to be a moment in your life where you have to draw the line and say that those behaviors are in the past. I have decided to follow Jesus. I am not going back. There has to be a moment that you have to speak to certain behaviors that you have allowed in your life and say no more of this uh, behavior because that is in the past. You must get rid of your old self. And we acknowledge that this cannot be done outside of Christ. It cannot be done. And what Paul's letter shows us here is that we have a responsibility. You and I have a responsibility as believers in the way we live as his followers. Let me say this, guys. Repentance is not just saying, sorry, forgive me for what I've done. That's not repentance. Repentance is acknowledging your sin. Repentance is, the, is acknowledging, you know, that expressing that genuine remorse and following up with a commitment. There's a commitment to completely change from the very things that caused you to do the things that you did. They, 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 there's a, there's a, following Jesus is a decisive act. That's it. There's a complete transformation. It's not, it's not just a word of apology saying, God, I'm sorry, but it's word and followed by action that you act towards following Jesus. There's a conversion that happens in our lives. The old is gone and the new has come because this is what you were taught to be made new, verse 23, in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You are to be transformed in your thinking because now you're not just learning about Jesus. You are learning him. You are emulating his lifestyle. To be made new in our minds is to know that we are just moving beyond the information and the knowledge. Because we love information. We love knowledge as a generation. But we are moving beyond just the knowledge. And we are moving towards where we put God, Jesus central to everything that we are doing. And he becomes, we think about him through and through. This is who a disciple of Jesus should be. One who loves, one who thinks, and one who acts like Jesus. 
because we are striving to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, a God-fashioned life, a life that is renewed from the inside out. That is a God-fashioned life, a, a, a life that, is, that, that we can be able to say, you know what, God's character is being refreshed and renewed in me. One of the Greek words that I love is, uh, uh, for new is kainos. And, and, and kainos means new, uh, fresh, recently made, uh, or unused. When you read 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 17, it talks about if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Back to my story about the Extreme Makeover Home Edition. When it comes to home improvements, and unless they are gutting down everything or demolishing the whole house, the contractors are limited to the old structures and the frames and the roofs and the load-bearing walls of the, old, of, the, of the old house. They are limited to that. The house looks new. It does. It looks good. But, but, but their creativity, even, even the designs that they've created are limited. Their reference point, their starting point is the old structure of the old house. So, so it doesn't matter what they come up with. It has to fit in the structures of the old house. Unfortunately, most of us as believers have done exactly that. We, we take the new life that we have and that we are, and, and we try to fix ourselves in our old way of life. We, we've knocked down a few behaviors. We've knocked down a few lies. And, and, and we brushed it up with some religious behaviors. Uh, we, 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 we read the scripture uh, uh, occasionally. You know, we, we pray sporadically. We, we attend church a couple of times, you know. Uh, 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 and, 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 and we look good, you know, uh, because the house does look good. But we are still standing on the foundations of our sinful life. And, and, and that's what we're doing. Uh, you, you know, we, we, we try and take our relationship with Jesus and we're trying to fix that relationship, fit that relationship in our old life. To be made new is not a renovation. To be made new in Christ is not a fixer-upper where you still stick to the old ways. You're trying to Accommodate Jesus into your old life. No, it is to put down. It's to knock down the old. It's to throw away the old and bring in the new. I love how the message translation paraphrases this. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him. Same verses. Been well instructed in the truth precisely as we have it in Jesus since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything connected with that old way of life has to go. It is rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And this, I say to us, it is not to be done outside of Christ. 
because only God can intervene and transform us from our sinful lives. What Paul is emphasizing here is that we have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. When God in his redeeming power renews us in Christ, conforming us to his likeness, you and I are invited to align ourselves and willingly do that with this transformative process. The, the, the metaphorical language that Paul is using here of putting off suggests to us it signifies a deliberate turning away from our old life. You're putting off. Even when he says put on, it signifies that there's a welcome embrace, there's a joyful, there's an excitement for us to this renewed existence of God that God has designed for you and I. We are no longer to be slaves of sin. We are freed to experience the abundant life that comes from knowing God. And, and, and Jesus extends this invitation to you and I because you cannot be able to do these things by yourself. But when he makes it available to you, then you choose to step into that. And so this is how you are to live. This is what the new you should live like. And Paul gives us some specifics. He talks about them from verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In other words... And there's some specifics that he gives throughout uh, for the next couple of uh, uh, verses. Discard any form of falsehood and instead embrace truth. And this applies to all believers. We are one. The emphasis here of truth goes beyond just mere honesty in speech. It's not just saying, we, there's this thing about speak your truth. You know, it's not just saying what you think is true. It, it reflects a deeper commitment to sincerity, transparency, authenticity in all aspects of our relationships, especially within the community of believers. L let me say this to us. In our current culture, speaking truthfully is becoming more challenging. Every day, we see it in politics, especially being the election year. We see it in business. And I even say, even now in the church, we find that truth mixed with a little lie has become acceptable. And it is evident, it is evident that we lie because we don't value the truth high enough. We, we think a lie will achieve some greater good, normally for our benefit. And, and unfortunately, believers are not living any different from unbelievers when it comes to this subject, you want to be interesting and sound more intelligent. So what do you do? You lie. You, you find that a lie might stop you from feeling awkward in a situation where the truth is hard or uncomfortable. And, and, and the result is we are developing behaviors and lifestyles that are founded on deceit. And here's what you'll discover. The more you lie, the more you lie. You just keep lying until you don't even know what the truth is. And this is a way of life that doesn't honor God. If we take time to reflect on our daily life, we might be surprised, if not shocked, at how many times we lie. Can I give us a few examples of how the lack of truthfulness in our day-to-day -day life has crept in and we, we allow it just to be there? You know, 
you, someone makes you a meal, and at the end of it all, what do we say? That was amazing. <laughs> and you know that you persevered through that meal. <laughs> Exaggeration. Where, where we, we describe minor achievements as a major achievement, especially in D.C., I don't know, I don't know what, what I'm trying to come up with examples, uh, but one of the examples I give the online, uh, uh, um, for the online message, I said, you know, you catch a small fish, but you're like, man, I caught the big fish ever. <laughs> Excuses that have become part of our day to day. I'm around the corner, I'm just around the corner. <laughs> or I'm on my way, and you've just stepped out of your door. So technically, you're on your way <laughs> because you are between your house and where you're going, right? So technically, you're on your way, but you know that you've just left your house. Or you tell your boss that you're running late because there's traffic, and you know that you overslept. <laughs> I hope those laughters are laughters that are leading us to repentance. Or, or, you know, you pretend, especially in these days of meetings and virtual meetings, you pretend that you are listening and you are nodding. Uh-huh, mm-hmm, huh. And your mind is miles away from that meeting. You are not even paying attention. You're not fully absorbing the information that is being shared with you. Here's another one that I see a lot, you know, where we act that we are excited to meet someone. Oh, so good to see you. Not. And, 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 and these things have become part of our life. Or where you don't want someone, maybe a friend will ask you, how do you, how, how do you like my outfit? And, and because you don't want to offend them, now, of course I'm saying that. Apply wisdom in how you, you tell them the truth, okay? But sometimes I find that in our efforts to apply wisdom, we'd rather lie than to say the truth so that we don't offend the other person. All right? Here's another one that couples will identify with. Uh, uh, those of us who are dating or those of us who are married. You know, uh, when asked if something is bothering you, your response is, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm good. Knowing very well that you are not fine and that you are upset and you're unhappy and probably the person who's asking you that question is the person who's made you unhappy. And you want to tell them that. And all the couples say it. Here's, here's one that I can guarantee you, I can put money on this. It will happen before this day is over along these hallways. You know, at the end of a conversation, you're about to walk out. What do we say? Let's catch up soon. <laughs> or let's have coffee. And you know that you have no intention of having coffee or catching up. You have no intention of putting it in the calendar. I promise you that will happen here today. Lies have become so much part of us that when we even want to prove that we are speaking the truth, we have to use phrases like, to be perfectly honest. Why do we have to say that? Why do you have to say to be perfectly honest? Because honestly speaking, like being perfectly honest to you guys is because most of the time we are not being perfectly honest. And so we have, whenever we want to be candid, we have to prove that 
We've been talking, but at this moment right here, I am being honest with you. A life that dishonors God is founded in, in deceit. But, but speaking the truth cancels out lies. Speaking the truth rules out lying. Truth reinforces unity. When someone believes in Jesus who is the truth and therefore comes to know the truth, that person is transformed to live out the truth in both word and action. Because you know that your identity is not in how you present yourself. Your identity is in Christ. So I don't have to lie to you about my achievements because my achievements, I find them in Christ. And my identity is in Him. I don't have to put up a facade because I know that my security and my foundation is in the Lord. And when you find that truth, indeed it sets us free from the lies of the enemy. And the result is that there's an overall unity and harmony amongst us as believers. That we care for one another. Replace lies with truth. Another thing that Paul brings out here is at verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. It's almost like Paul is saying, you will be angry. You, you will be angry because you will be made upset by someone or something. But it's important for us to know that anger has been known to be among the top destructive emotions that kill relationships. Anger is a strong feeling you get when something makes you upset or frustrated. When, when someone has done something hurtful to you, it provokes these emotions that, and that kind of anger can easily transform into self-serving, uh, defensive, where you begin to seek revenge. Guys, it seems there is anger everywhere. Everywhere you turn to. I mean, family disputes, marital issues, road rage. Oh my goodness, road rage. I'm like, you don't even know me. <laughs> we, we, we've seen this across the country. The, the killings, the, the mass shootings. Uh, we see it, racism, protests, the political divisions that we see. It is like we're becoming angrier every day. And this is also seeping into the church in our relationships with one another. Look at what James says in verse uh, 20 of chapter 1. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. It doesn't. Proverbs 29 talks about an angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Ecclesiastes, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of who? Now, two things that I pick uh, from what Paul says here. If you can put back for me verse 26. When you look at what Paul says here in your anger, do not sin. He says, do not let the sun go down. And then he also says, do not give the devil a foothold. There is choice and there is urgency. There is choice because he's saying, do not let the day end while you still have this deep-seated emotion. There is choice and there is urgency. When you choose to let go of the anger, you're choosing to not allow the emotion to come between you and the other person or the people or even allow that anger or that emotion to control you and lead you to sin. You are saying that unity is more important to me right now than just what I feel. 
that my relationship with you is way more important. And the success of this relationship, it's more important than what I feel right now. God's purposes for this relationship, God's purposes for the body of Christ is far much greater than my emotion in this very moment. And this is what maturity is about. When we begin to grow in the likeness of Christ, then we understand these things. You're making a choice to love the other more than you want them to be hurt or more than you want revenge for them. So whatever you do, make sure it is not something that gives the, the enemy an opportunity to destroy that relationship. Whatever you do, make sure that you don't give the enemy an opportunity for you to go ahead and sin. Do not let anger control you, leading you to sin. Instead, replace anger with godliness, with righteousness. Guys, if there is anyone who has the absolute right to be angry, it is God. Numbers 14 talks about the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Guys, when I think, so, sometimes when I read such scriptures, I'm like, Lord, have mercy. That's why even, the, you know, the, the Bible authors will say something like, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Because he has every right to be angry, but we see his character is one that is slow to anger. You see, anger is a normal emotion. It's a temporary emotion that finds resolution. It finds resolution. If anything, the thing that we as believers should be angry about are injustice, immorality, and godliness. Instead of us being angry with one another here in the church, we should be angry at what the enemy is doing in this world. In fact, I think that we as the church, we probably need to pray for that kind of righteous anger to come in us because I say, sometimes I think we become too comfortable with the forces of evil just doing what they want to do in this area. And we need to pray about that. We've gotten too comfortable and we need to become angry at the abuse of alcohol and drugs in our cities that is wiping out this generation. We need to become angry at pornography that has bound many individuals in this city. The anger that we need to have, the righteous anger, is the corruption that we see in our world. We need to become angry at the increase in crime and murders that we continue to see, to become angry because there are millions of people who are dying without Christ in their lives. That is what we should be angry about, not against one another. We shouldn't be angry about one another. And so, yes, you may offend me, but may I not allow the sun to go down before I have rectified that relationship? That kind of anger, righteous anger, should inspire righteousness, should inspire us to keep preaching the word, should inspire us to keep inviting our neighbors and bring them into a space where they can also learn about God and receive their freedom. Because when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. And there are so many people across our cities who are bound in the slavery of sin. And that needs to make us angry. How I pray that God will give us righteous anger. Verse 28 says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no more, must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. You see, guys, there's a deep-rooted fleshly attraction to take what does not belong to us. 
It's deeply rooted in our fleshly desires. Most people steal out of greed, not need. I don't have what you have and I want it. So I will do what I must do to get it. And this is a lifestyle that is consistent with the character of the devil. In fact, Jesus in John 10 calls him the, the thief. The thief comes to steal. The enemy tempts us to steal by sowing seeds of discontentment in our minds. And we begin to believe that what we have is not enough and we need more. Or what others have is what I need. And I look at you and your life and we begin to covet those things. That's why even one of the commandments is that, in fact, two commandments. You should not steal, but also you should not covet your neighbor's things. And, and so you want the latest fashion, you want the latest phone or the latest car, but because you cannot afford it, what do you do? You steal. You find ways to make that extra dollar. And by the way, we're in tax seasons. So I hope that this message will remain true throughout this tax season. You know what I'm talking about. We, we doctor our expense reports. We use company resources for our own benefit so that we can make an extra dollar. You reduce your giving even in the church because you're like, how can I give that $1,000 and yet I don't have that? Paul is saying replace greed with generosity. Work hard. Earn a living and do something useful. Share what you have. Work is good. Don't miss what he's saying here in this verse. Do not miss that he's saying we should work hard so that we can give to those in need and do the work of the Lord. Allow God the opportunity to bless others through you. You do not work and earn so that you can get a more flashier life. That is not what Paul is saying to the believers here. It is so that you can advance God's agenda. Seek first his kingdom and all these other blessings will be added unto you. As you bless and do God's work, he blesses you. Every need and every desire that you have that is aligned to his will will be provided, shall be provided. As you bless, then God blesses you. And one of the ways you bless is giving even through the church. And that's why we always like to create opportunities for you to give because generosity is one of the virtues of the followers of Jesus. And we need to keep nurturing that virtue. Replace greed with generosity. Your behaviors must align with your belief in Jesus. Guys, the list that Paul gives is not exhaustive, but it's transformative. I know some of us may be hearing this and you say, "What, Pastor, this sounds like it's a list of do's and don'ts. And I say, yes, it does. Because we need to be careful that we do not go around spreading a gospel of cheap grace suggesting that all you just need to do is say a prayer and then you can resume to your way of living and everything will be good. And I'm speaking to all of us who are believers and those of us who are choosing to follow Jesus. And if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I am glad because then you get to hear what it means for you when you decide to follow Jesus. The gospel of Jesus involves the message of repentance. It involves recognizing that sin don't miss this. Sin is offensive to a holy and righteous God. 
requires believers to surrender their lives in response to the rebirth and the transformation of the heart. The gospel underscores the understanding that our salvation, my salvation, your salvation came at a greater cost to God. What Paul here is emphasizing is that becoming a follower of Jesus involves a radical change. You see, Jesus is always about grace and truth. Come as you are, but do not choose to remain as you are. Because in your sinful nature here at the district church, we welcome you. Come and be a part of us. But in your being with Christ, in your being with other believers, there's a transformation that is happening to you day by day, one behavior at a time, you know, one day at a time, putting off one and then putting on another. And that changes who you are and how you live. You're being converted into Christ's likeness day by day. And when you hear a message like this, don't just listen, then go back to your old way of living. No, you do what the Word says. You do what the Word says. And so I want, us to, I want to invite us to a time of response. I don't know where this message finds you. I know there's certain things that have been triggered in your life. What I like about the Word of God is that I always see it as a mirror and a portrait at the same time. Because when I look at it, 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 it shows me who I am. It shows me my sinful nature. It shows me the areas that God is working. I don't stand here because I'm holier than thou. There's a lot that God is working in on me. But then I also see it as a portrait because it gives me this picture of my future self, the hope that I have in Christ, that, that this is who he would like for me to become, that when I see his righteousness, when I see the character of Jesus, I'm like, that is who God would like me to, and He's helping me achieve that, accomplish that. There's a new hope, and that hope promises victory for me. And so there's a beauty when we sit in a space like this and we learn from God's Word. But I'm praying that it will inspire us to keep pursuing His righteousness in our lives. And so I'm going to invite us to rise to our feet. prayer team is going to be here at the front. The, the words of Luke 11.28 says, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. We're going to sing briefly this song. And as we sing, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe for you it's to respond by singing and just worshiping God. But maybe you need to come and stand here and pray with someone today. Just say, you know what, this is, this is the conviction that I'm receiving from this message. Because James chapter 1, 22 says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. And down in verse 25, it says, if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it.